0: Welcome to DevMode FM, a podcast dedicated to the tools, techniques, and technologies used in modern web development. I'm Patrick Harrington from Mildly Geeky in Boston. I'm Andrew Welch from NY Studio 107. Today we have a very special guest. We have Yuna Kravitz.
1: Hi, everyone. Hey, how are you? Good. Thank you for having me.
0: Yuna, um, people have known you from different places. You, you were at IBM at one point, uh, but you've just made a big uh, career change. Where are you now?
1: I'm at Google now.
0: Very cool. Yeah. And this is just in the last month or two, right?
1: Yeah, I started about a month and a half ago. So I'm very new to the team. So very now cool. you're, a,
2: you're a Googler? Is that what we call you?
1: Yes, a Googler.
2: You're a Googler. All in Googler,
1: right. theory, a Noogler. So. Yeah. yeah,
0: you're still a Noogler. But. I,
1: have, I just got the hat and everything.
0: Very cool. They give you a hat?
1: Yes, you get one of those propeller hats. They're real. They exist.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a joke every time I've seen that.
1: It's a, not a joke.
2: It's oh real God. life. It's the
1: best part. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I love it. I have it hanging in my home office now. It's
2: So how long until you give up the Noogler and you're actually a Googler?
1: Um, I don't know. I mean, we'll see. We'll see. Maybe when I get like a formalized badge, <laughs> that's what.
0: That's helpful. <laughs> But you're there not can't be any hazing View, or anything, right?
1: <laughs> I haven't experienced that personally, so okay. I think I'm in the clear.
0: All right. Sorry, Patrick. <laughs> and ahead. you're not out in Mountain View, are you? Or...
1: No, I'm based in the New York office. Okay,
0: very cool. My people, I'm in New York yes. too. Yes. You say you're in New York. That's upstate, though. That's, that's a whole <laughs> Yeah, It kind
2: of doesn't world. count. How far <laughs> <How>
1: upstate? <laughs>
2: I'm in like the, the cow pasture part of New York.
1: Okay, that's, I mean, it's still New York. New York is a big state. It's just might not be New York City.
2: I'm like six hours from New York City, assuming that's where you are.
1: I'm in Brooklyn, but I work in Manhattan, so I get to kind of be a part of both every day.
2: Mm, that's a little, that's, uh, do you enjoy that commute?
1: I don't mind it because I live yeah. really close to the train. Mm. Okay. And the yeah. office is right off the train. So it's really easy for me to get there.
2: I knew a bunch of people that lived uh, in Brooklyn and that was always their quest when they were looking for a place to stay was
0: somewhere close to the subway. Like yeah. that was it. That was what they're going for. Yeah. So, you know, tell me a little bit about you. I, I, you know, coming in, we were both like, Oh, should I have you on? And I knew you as the person who did amazing SaaS wizardry back at peers conference a few years ago. And you were at IBM at that time, but you've done so much more and you have a podcast on web technology. So, for, for people who don't know you, tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Yeah, Pierce is a while ago. So, yeah. hi, my name is Yuna. Um,
0: <laughs> hi, Yuna.
1: <laughs> I do a lot of work in sort of experimental CSS, creative web development. And like you said, I used to be very involved in the SaaS community. I started two different SaaS meetup groups. Um, I started giving workshops on SAS, and that's sort of what built my development career. And then um, from there, I started experimenting with SVG, web performance, images, how we can make the most optimized images. I started doing more exploration with CSS as new features came out. There's been a lot of really exciting features that have come out in the past couple of years. Um, I just continued to sort of speak about web development from a design perspective. So my role has always sort of been in my day job and sort of outside of it, experimenting with this intersection of web development and web design.
2: So I- intersectional web design.
1: Yeah, I like to kind of think of it as visual web development. Um, my last role, I was the director of product design at a media company called Bustle, and so that involved a lot of work with sort of systems thinking and thinking about how you can scale systems of design, but then develop products at the same time and see those products scale as well. So. I've always been sort of doing design via code. And I think when you're building products and features, there's a lot of design that's involved in that too. So it's kind of always been an, I don't know, it's sort of full stack design in the sense where you kind of ideate, you do um, UI design, you think about your user, the UX of that experience, and then you build it as well.
0: Yeah, and and so that dovetails really well, I think, into your new role at Google, and that makes sense. So tell us a little bit more, what's your, you know, your focus at, at Google?
1: So I joined... Um, the design relations team as a developer advocate for Material Design, which is a design system that Google has created for a variety of platforms, and my focus is the web.
0: If you were if you were geocaching out up in say Cornucopia, Wisconsin, and you came upon someone else who had reached the cache at the same time, and you know you're battling for this little Tupperware <laughs> container of you know some treasure, and they notice a pin on your backpack that said Material.io. They, you know, they said, material, What what is material? What would you tell them?
1: So material, it's a lot of things. It's a design spec that lets you create beautiful products using a, um, a series of best practices and a series of tools that are provided to you from designers at Google. It's also a series of actual code components that you can use to build your product in. So it's it provides Flutter, iOS, um, Android tools, and web tools. And so the idea is to really make your life easier as a web developer and help you to build cross-platform in a way that's efficient, that's uh, giving an effective user experience that people are used to, that's been tried and tested, and that lets you build your product in a way that makes people Oh gosh, I need to like re- reword yeah. this. I'm still so bad at kind of... They just got
0: it. the geocache. They ran off with it and they... Yeah, well, yeah. Wow.
1: so when I started describing it, this is the problem. I feel like it's <laughs> such a great product for the web, but because it's so broad, it's hard to pin down exactly like one thing that it does. It does so many different things and there's so many different teams that work on it too. So, I mean, my personal short pitch is like, Material design lets you build beautiful products in a fast and efficient way. It helps development teams like fast forward their process, and it helps fast forward that process in um, by using best practices. So that's kind of like the easy way for me to kind of describe it, but it's so much more than that that it's hard to just pinpoint <laughs> it to that.
2: Well, and a, a goal has to be consistency, right? Isn't that important to Google? And it was the my understanding and it could be completely wrong is that the genesis of this was Google wanted a design system for their products and thus birthed it or is that not correct?
1: Well, Material has evolved a lot and what you're kind of alluding to is the Google Material theme, which is mm. one example of a theme that uses Material mm. Design. And that's how Google represents its own brand through Material, so products like Gmail um, various other products use Google Material theme. but but the actual core components themselves and the system of material is themable. So you can create your own style, by using those components and implementing them in a way that fits your own brand. And there's been a lot of tools that my team has come out with lately that make that a little bit easier. Um, We created this build a material theme project on Glitch where you walk through all of these subsystems that let you theme material. And those subsystems are color, typography, and shape, and then have a personalized customizable theme that lets you kick off your own product development, and then, you know, if you have to customize it on top of there, you have a great baseline from which to do so.
2: Interesting. So just like clothing can look radically different depending on the type of material that it's created out, out of, material, the, the the design system can be themed
0: as well? I, I had no idea. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. I I just assumed that everything was going to look like G Suite and Google Calendar and all that if, if you went the material way of things. or
2: Sorry, Una. truth be told... Patrick said, all right, I'm gonna have to be nice because I don't I don't like the sameness of the web. I'm gonna make sure I'm really good and I don't say anything about it. Well, guess what, Patrick? You're wrong, Patrick.
1: <sighs> no, I You're hear wrong. you. Yeah, this is why I, this I is took good to the get the word out yeah. because like I think that there's a lot of sameness on the web right now. And I love infusing creativity into web development, seeing how the web shows personality. And when I saw what Google was doing with material, with theming, with having a tool set that gives designers a baseline from which to grow from, it made me really excited about the product. So Mm. that is what made me want to get involved at this point in time when it's starting to like blossom into this thing that can be really helpful and unique for teams.
0: Hmm. And I don't want to, one thing that I don't want to miss, only because I love when on these podcasts, when I can learn something entirely new that I didn't know I was going to learn. What is Flutter? You you've named Flutter right alongside iOS and, and Android and the web. What is Flutter?
1: Yeah, so that's a good question. Flutter is a um, framework, it's a UI framework for writing applications that port out to different languages. So you could write it once and then have it port out to like iOS and Android.
0: Okay. So this is similar to React Native or there have been another ones over time, but it, you know, a system that allows you to to build components and, and post out to native Uh, Yeah, so
1: exactly. So there's been other systems over time. If you want someone to show talk about Flutter, I have some great people that you can talk to. I'm not like super, super familiar with it, but when they talk about it, I wish that I knew more about it because Mm. they're like so excited and it sounds like it's this really cool tool for the the development world. (laughs) You know, everyone wants to not have to duplicate their code so many times. So it's a tool that I'm excited to see where it goes.
2: Yeah. You mean they're trying to put an end to... Cut and paste development? I mean, I'm going to be out of a job then. I feel like the
1: development world has been doing that for like 20 years.
2: <laughs> well, I've been doing it that long and I can tell you for sure that yes, it's been happening for 20 years.
1: Trying to end the cycle.
2: Yeah. Break the wheel. Well, how does Dart fit into all of that? Or, or does it?
1: Um, I believe that it's written with Dart.
2: Oh, so Flutter is written with Dart. Yes. Interesting. But don't
1: quote me. Let me just double check. I'm pretty sure.
2: Hey Patrick, I've got an idea. Why don't we have Yuna on and we'll just talk to her about stuff that she's not involved in? Right. That's, yeah.
1: Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The it's written it's written in C++. Right. It provides low-level rendering support using Google's Skia graphics library. I thought that Dart was involved somewhere. There's a Dart runtime and compile tool chain there. So if you know Dart, you can write with it.
2: Are you cutting and pasting this off of the website? <laughs> I'm
1: looking at Wikipedia because I don't, I, don't know, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know a lot about this technology right now. <laughs> I'm new. Uh, I work on the web.
0: That's <laughs> great. Well, you're a Noogler, so it's okay. Yeah. Right? So yeah, so Material Design's not just for Google's internal applications. It's anyone who wants what a framework and, and I mean is this uh web components at, at at its base or is it a is it not I mean I guess it can't be just tied to web components because it can also work for native apps. How how do you think about that?
1: Yeah, so there's a few different ways to use Material, as I mentioned earlier. And one of those is like MDC Web. And MDC Web is a series of components that are not tied to web components specifically, but they use SAS to create your themable styles, which ports out to CSS. And then um, it's just HTML and JavaScript. It's vanilla H- JavaScript and just regular HTML markup, so it's as baseline as possible, so that people could write wrappers on them if they want to, or integrate them into whatever system they need for their own applications.
2: Does Material use any kind of like design tokens or abstract things like that in the uh, in the design system?
1: So it uses a series of variables, and like the typography, for example, is written with maps. So mm. every typographic element has um, key value pairs, and it's just it's a tool in SAS. So it's not really design tokens per se, mm. but it is a very Variable-based system, and that's what allows for that customization and themability for when you're using Material and you want to make it look like your own, but have all of the components sort of output properly with all the variances on the colors that you might see, and like a ripple on top of a button or a highlight color or like an outline, things like that.
2: So if it if it's in SAS, how does this then get boiled down to something that can be used on Android, for instance? I got to ask because my wife is doing design for an Android app. Right now, and she's heavily steeped in the whole material <laughs> stuff. And how how does that go from SaaS to something that can then be used on an Android device?
1: So SaaS is what's used for MDC Web, the components that work on the web. Right. But there's a different product that works with Android. So there's uh, Android has its own components, its own sort of documentation and usage. So that's different. And that's have, not
2: called Material as well.
1: Well, it is c- called Material Design, but it's a different core. Product Ah. that provides those components. So it's all under this umbrella of material design. And then there's different subsets of this material design product that allow for developers to implement that into the systems that they're using to develop with.
2: When you're saying they're all under these different umbrellas, I'm picturing like a beautiful beach, like overhead shot, and all these uh, colorful umbrellas are kind of spread out on the sand.
1: (laughs) I wish that was my job.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You don't have one of those in New York City? Come on.
1: Well, there is a beautiful outdoor patio. Mm. And it's so nice. I will say, I think it's the best office.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So can bits and parts of material be pulled into a project? Is it something where you have to go all in with material? Or if you're, you know, just at a very basic level looking at select drop downs, and you want to have them work the way material does? Can you pull in just sections?
1: Totally. So you can pull in individual components, integrate those with your own application, create your layout, and then you know, if you needed to have a form and you wanted to use Material's input styles, you can use components from Material there. If you wanted to use the top app bars that Material provides, you could integrate that with your existing application. So it doesn't have to be an all-or-nothing thing, but if you do want to focus more on integrating Material components underneath like the spec and the design of Material, there are guidelines for how to do that as well. Okay. So you likely want to mix and match things that are more custom to your application with things that are general components that Material provides to have like a holistic experience. But in theory, you could build your application entirely out of the components alone.
0: Hmm. Does it play well with others? If you have an app that's totally built in React, is this something where you you do NPM install Material and you're able to import in just the the chunks you need into into whatever you're trying to output or how does that work
1: so with react it gets like a little tricky um if you're using sass then you won't have a problem Mm -hmm. because you can just import it how you would otherwise and a lot of big sites are using sass it's just Mm -hmm. the way that you organize css and it's um a little bit there's a little bit more history to it than like the new css and js libraries so um you won't have a problem there because you're integrating that and then you're using the vanilla JavaScript and um, markup that you can use in React anyway. Um, You might have to like rename class to class name, Mm -hmm. a couple things like that. Like you'll have to make alterations for different frameworks. Mm -hmm. But if you're using a CSS and JS technique, it might be a little bit trickier to integrate the components just because you won't get a lot of the theming and the way that it's built right now to work.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I, I saw a similar conversation, people talking about Tailwind, where folks who are in React and doing CSS and JS wanted to be able to yeah, just pluck out the, the, the bits and parts they needed on a component-by-component component basis. But it almost requires you to have some agreed-upon class names and, and just kind of abide by those rather than, yeah, pulling it right in as a dependency and having it take care of all that.
1: Right. And in theory, you could also use Material without that customization. Mm-hmm. But You kind of miss a lot of the features that it provides and a lot of like the mix-ins and things that you can do to even enhance or customize the base components. So you can use the components, but you don't get the full spectrum of what the product gives you.
2: Got kind of. it. Man, I made a comment on the Material GitHub repo like years ago, and I'm still get email <laughs> notifications on it <laughs> from time to time. It was something dumb, too. I, I It was like a, a feature request to to have it use Flexbox instead of floats or something silly like that for the web components. But man, like like, <laughs> out of nowhere, four or five months will pass and then I'll get an email that someone commented on it. I'm like, what is going
1: on? It's actually you, being worked on.
2: <laughs> that, that That's happening?
1: <laughs> I mean, it's actually being worked on. Um, the product is, and that's probably why you're getting responses oh, okay. from GitHub. I see. But a lot of the decisions that are made in Material are also made to support older browsers. Mm. So ie 11 is something that Material supports. And so we can't just use all the latest and greatest CSS technologies a lot of bigger companies have to still support these browsers. And so we try to provide a tool that allows for that kind of support and then they could progressively enhance from there.
2: So, how do you make the decision to drop IE 11? Like, how does that happen?
1: Oh, uh, I don't make that decision <laughs> <laughs> right now. Um, <laughs> but what I would do is look at your sort of usage over time. So, mm-hmm. if you have analytics like Google Analytics, check your usage on your website to see right. how many people are mm-hmm. going to your website from all the different browsers. And um, I know that at previous companies that I've worked at, if it was less than 1%, then it could be dropped. Right. Um, now at my last job, there was a very small number of IE 11 users. However, those users were the users that were paying to have ads on the site. Mm. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you got to think about who your user is and then make a case by case decision.
2: Yeah. And I've had instances where, there'll be a very small percentage will be on IE11, but then like the CEO Mm -hmm. will be using IE11. Right. So you can't, you just, you can't. (laughs) But what I meant more from a, from a framework perspective, like do you have any kind of a, an idea of how that conversation would end up happening inside of Google where you're just like, Hmm, you know, at what point should we just say, forget it? To IE 11 support,
1: well, I can't really comment on the future of the product pipeline or anything. Got but it. I'm sure that conversation, you know, continuously happens, and I'm sure that product managers are continuously revisiting audience and um, what makes sense for them.
2: Because I remember, I, don't, I think it was something I saw on YouTube where they were talking about uh, YouTube itself that they put a little notice up there saying that they weren't going to support a certain version of Internet Explorer anymore. This is like many, many years ago. And it it was just something that was just kind of done without asking anybody. And I'm sure this wouldn't really happen, you know, these days, but it was just done as a way to migrate. And then all the other teams inside Google, this was shortly after Google had acquired YouTube, they were like, oh, you know, thank God uh, YouTube is no longer supporting the super old version of Internet Explorer now we can drop support of it from Gmail. Like this is fantastic. And they assumed it was like vetted, right? But instantly, like overnight, <laughs> the uh, a big chunk of the internet just stopped supporting this really old Internet Explorer browser. Uh, either of you heard that story before? Yeah,
0: it was a great piece that was out there. I yeah. Yeah. It- what is it, Yuna?
1: Oh, I'm saying I don't remember. Um, I haven't oh. used IE in a long time. Yeah, it was
0: like the 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 YouTube guys and they they just someone just decided to ask for forgiveness rather than permission and just put up a notice. and Yeah, and it just snowballed from there. Um, yeah. It was one of those, like, Thanks. they lucked out because it, it had it gone wrong, yeah, they could have been in some trouble. But, yeah, it just finally broke up and opened a floodgate.
1: Yeah, that was a... it was hard, a cr- yeah, because you don't want to break the internet. You don't want to break existing infrastructure. Right. And it's hard. I feel like IE-11's port is going to continue until it's officially dead... By Microsoft. And I mean, it's still something that exists because there's no replacement for it right now. Um, but I think like I've heard 2025 or something is the deprecation yeah. date for it. <laughs>
2: wow. Well, I'm, I'm going to try and find this story and, and link to it because it was it was actually a really interesting story because it's exactly what Patrick was saying. There were a bunch of engineers at YouTube that if they had been there long enough, they had the ability to just push stuff live. Right. And if they ever abuse that privilege, it would then be revoked, whatever. They decided to just push this thing that said a little notice would show up saying, you know, uh, YouTube is no longer going to work with this browser. You know, click here for alternatives. And they listed Chrome and Firefox and people could then go download it. And they were worried that. Uh, What was going to happen is that they were going to get in trouble for it. But again, other teams like at Google saw that YouTube had done this and said, oh, you know, they must have vetted this. This must be like okay. And they started doing the same thing. And like, boom, instantly, (laughs) they just dropped the the support for it. Yeah, it was a
0: crazy story. Anyway, sorry, I don't want to sidetrack. We'll, we'll link to it in the show notes.
1: No, I'm curious about that Yeah, too. it was on The
0: Verge. I, and yeah, they put it up just for IE6 users and I guess legal got involved, but they had already kind of thought that, you know, we want to make sure we're not pushing Chrome over Firefox or Safari. So they, they randomized the order of the browsers. They had actually done a really good job yeah. thinking through what conversations might come about. Yeah. Okay. I found it. So you're right. It was an article.
2: So the... Former Google engineer reveals the secret YouTube plot to kill Internet Explorer <laughs> six. Yeah, so I don't, I don't want to be like uh, one of the evil viziers that's kind of you know speaking poison into your, your ear here, Yuna. So don't get any crazy ideas. Okay, <laughs> don't, don't, don't be you know deprecating IE eleven. I'm just, I'm just mentioning it.
1: I actually remember um, some website, I think in Australia, there was an article about this. It was an e-commerce website. They had put up like a deprecation notice for IE11. They were saying, our website no longer supports IE11, like please update your browser, etc. And the reason they did it is because the cost of engineering support to support that browser was higher than the amount of revenue they were making from people using that browser. Boom. So it wouldn't make sense to keep that going when you know, you have engineering hours and your whole website infrastructure is dependent on something that's dated. Um, and I think it definitely makes sense in that case to kind of move forward and hope that your users shift. But again, you know, you don't always know everyone's situation. A lot of people are using IE because they have to use a certain version for work. Um, and so it's, it sucks for them, but You don't want to break the internet for people in any case.
2: Yeah. And and I definitely agree with your recommendation to look at your analytics, but I also agree to go deeper because you were mentioning that, you know, it'd be a small percentage is using this, but those are the people that are paying for something, right? So, So you have to make sure that there's an actual business case for getting rid of it. But I always feel bad because not just the engineering hours in supporting it, but also then you kind of end up having to dumb down the site to an extent for... You know, there's some fantastic, awesome features that you might want to take advantage of, but you, you can't because the testing matrix just gets ridiculous, you know? Yeah. yeah. There's
1: always progressive enhancements where right. you can test for feature support. You can sure. write it, for example, in Grid. It's a lot easier, in my opinion, to write a website layout in CSS Grid and then have a fallback that's outside of an at supports media query that right. falls back to Flexbox or floats based on the browsers that you need support.
2: Yeah, I mean, that is definitely a thing. And I've I've read, um, I think it's Rachel Andrews, maybe, um, who had some stuff on this. I think it was her. I'm not sure. Rachel um, has
1: a lot of work with CSS Grid and Jen Simmons, too.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But I saw some of the fallbacks. I'm like, yeah, I could do that. Or I could just not care about IE.
1: <laughs> yeah. I actually have a website called gridtoflex.com. Uh-huh. Um, and it shows you, like, common... UIs and layouts that you can create in grid and then the fallback within the same sort of CSS file. um, So you can kind of get both in one.
2: Found
0: it. Got it. Be in the show notes. Awesome. Nice. Very cool. Yeah, I had a whole bunch of questions about, you know, well, why are we going to make all of our websites look like G Suite? But now I, I, I'm... <laughs>
1: <laughs> Sorry to burst your bubble. Uh, well, now I think it's a common misconception, though. People don't realize that this is a tool for developers. It's not just a tool for developers inside of Google. Mm,
0: yeah. Mm. Well, yeah. I, I mean, I'm looking. So anyone who's interested, go to material.io and there's this Whole design section. They have material studies, and it's kind of case studies written up of how different you know, almost themes have been written on top of material. And yeah, it's just interesting because they don't all look the same. They don't all look like G Suite up. There's one that's a, a this one called Rally that looks like a really neat um, dark theme dashboard. Um, yeah, it's just interesting to see just different ideas about what something could look like um, built on the same uh, functional components behind the scenes. As long as it doesn't get to the
2: point where I can recognize that it's a material theme, right? Like I, I can go to a website and with a pretty mm. good frequency, I can tell you it's a WordPress theme or not.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you
1: know? Or yeah, or Bootstrap or mm-hmm. any other of the yeah. big right. CSS libraries.
2: Right. And as someone who comes from a, a, a design background like that, that can't be a thing that you're, you're too wild about, right? Like you want a little bit of uh, uniqueness out there on the web.
1: That's why I like working in this space because it does create this challenge where you are trying to figure out what the best solution is in terms of engineering time and design customization. Hmm. So there's always going to be a little give and take between having a entirely bespoke customized website right. and having a website built with an existing system. That is like the point at which all things are nice and good. There's like this chart. I'm drawing it in the air, but you can't really see it <laughs> in which your time versus your product output sort of crosses over on that chart. Um, and, you know, ideally you want to use something that gives you the tools that you need to get started easily, and then you can customize on top of that. And I think that's up to the design team, and the developers. Mm.
2: Yeah. Cause complete freedom means no design system at all. Right. right.
1: And I Good. think that we're actually seeing that a lot now mm. where we're seeing these designs that are sort of um, bespoke coming out that are very much like grotesque design or like Bauhaus design where you get these experimental like 90s-esque like intentionally ironic website layouts. And those are just so interesting to me because I see that this trend is sort of emerging on the web where people are so tired of these similar looking websites that they're going into the complete opposite direction where it's kind of chaotic and things don't necessarily make sense. So it's a little harder for the users to figure out what's going on, but it creates a memorable experience.
2: I knew that one day all those crappy old websites I designed would become <laughs> become popular
0: again. Like I just so did.
1: trendy. I mean like the nineties are trendy now in fashion. So right. it kind of makes sense that they're trendy again on the web.
0: I love this. Is two podcasts in a row. Oh, I, I wasn't on the uh, the Webpack podcast, but uh, that we get to talk about vaporwave and the yeah the comeback of the pinnacle of design, which was '90s hot pinks, uh, gradients, marble structures. For some reason, uh, Jack yeah. McDade of Statamic, uh, everything they do is pretty much vaporwave.
1: Yeah. It's super trendy. And I'm curious to see like where we'll see that go because I, I think like the adoption of fashionable trends, which can also relate to web trends, is sort of early adopters and then the bigger companies start to adopt and then other companies start to follow and then it gets less trendy. So then you're on to the next thing.
2: Oh, uh, that's funny, Patrick, because when you when you were talking about uh vapor wave, mm-hmm. I, I thought you were talking about like a, a flavor of vape, you know what I mean?
0: <laughs> like the the that kind of e-cigarette thing. <sighs> No, no. Um, no. Vaporwave is, yeah, it's an entire lifestyle. Oh, look,
2: man, I lived through the nineties. I I know (laughs) (laughs) it's coming back, but uh, you and I had a question for you though. So what made Google decide to take this from an internal design system and make it public and let other people play with it? Like what's the reasoning there?
1: Well, the idea is that Google wants to create a better development environment for people, for humans. Mm. And, um, Just on the web, you know, Google wants to help web developers do their job, right? As well as Android developers, as well as people who are developing cross-platform to iOS. So it would make sense that Google creates a toolkit to make developers' lives easier, and that's material design. And also designers' lives easier because it provides a lot of research, a lot of these case studies, a lot of thought behind how to think about design systems and how to build design systems. So it's just really trying to make developers' and designers' lives easier. Um, and I think that it's really cool to see that and also to infuse these best practices in these components.
2: All right. So since that's their goal, my next question, and this is one of Patrick's favorite topics, mm. does Material work with Google AMP?
1: Oh. Not right now.
2: Thank goodness.
1: Um. <laughs>
2: Stop, Patrick, come on. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's a, Have some respect. It's a, come on. <laughs>
1: Um, Yeah, so it sounds like you have some thoughts. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
0: What are your thoughts, Patrick? Well, uh, we we have a Googler on the show. Would you define AMP as a a proof of concept or something more than that?
1: Um, It's a little outside the scope of... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> my yeah, role right is um, well
2: we're venturing off this is into just talking to talk about
0: a bet with someone who who insisted that it's a a fun little proof of concept and i think it's a much larger endeavor by google not a proof of concept i'm not going anywhere else with that but i think it's going to be on the proof of concept phase rog
1: i don't really know like what the roadmap or timeline is for amp itself mm-hmm. um i think that the heart behind it is definitely there and i don't know implementations can always change
2: well, the reason I'm asking about AMP, though, is that one of the things you mentioned about material design is it's a way to help web developers make stuff better. And as soon as you started talking about that, I'm like, oh, that's kind of the same pitch for AMP, you know? So I'm surprised that they don't they don't work together. Is that a, a long-term goal or do you know what's going on there?
1: I can't comment. You
2: can't comment. All right. <laughs>
0: all right. Product. She can no
2: either nor, confirm nor deny. I cannot
1: confirm nor deny. I wish that I had more info for you.
2: And not only that, she can't conform, nor do I.
1: I can't conform. (laughs) I'm I'm following along your route of pronunciation.
2: Oh, you're doing way better than me. (laughs) Trust me. Trust me. All right. Well, in in any event, I mean, that's something that... I'm actually kind of interested in that because unlike Patrick, I have drunk the AMP Kool-Aid and <laughs> the uh, the devmo.fm website is all AMP and my website works with AMP and you know everything all works wonderful. And it, it just seems like it would be a natural thing for Google to do would be to allow material design to work with AMP because these are these two technologies. I know you can't comment on it, so I'm going to comment for you. There are these two technologies to help. De- web developers make stuff better. Makes sense that they're going to get together at some point. You know, kind of like a, a good character arc in Game of Thrones. Like it's it's going to pay off. It's going to come together, and it's going to pay off.
1: Yeah, we hope it pays off mm. at the end. We right hope it now. pays well, off with Game of Thrones. We don't really know. No, Patrick. but I love hearing this kind of feedback because honestly, that's sort of what my role is to hear this kind of feedback from you, from people in the community. And we're always trying to explore how to benefit the design development community, how to improve the product. Mm-hmm. Um and like I hear you. And so I like getting this kind of feedback.
0: What were you saying, Andrew? Nothing. Oh uh, okay. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean I had questions around, you know, is this like something like jQuery Mobile where we're all gonna kind of look like Google for a while, but then what if Google moves away from it? Hit it, it, what what is the theming ecosystem like right now around material uh, you know are you seeing people that are doing some really cool and interesting things that don't look like stock google or are they a little bit derivative right now where, where would you like to see it go
1: i think it's sort of just in the early exploration phases mm-hmm. really um theming was announced in at io of last year mm-hmm. but we just started coming up with a lot of tools that give developers sort of those results in their hands. Um, And Glitch is one example of where we're doing that. So at Google I.O. this year, which was just two weeks ago, three weeks ago, um, we had a little demo at a sandbox where we had a lot of people come by and create their own themes by using the system. And we saw a lot of really interesting variations. And that was just the start. Like that was sort of the starting point for, okay, take this. Now go and build your product around this. Customize it even further. Make it your own. Um, But what we were doing is we were walking people through how to update the color system, how to update the typography. We were just using Google Fonts because you have all these free fonts that are Really high quality. Um, And then also the shape. And I think shape is a really interesting subsystem with material because you can change the shapes of all the corners for small, medium, and large components. Mm -hmm. So a button can look different than a menu. Um, Like a dialogue that pops up can look different than um, a sidebar. So you have these different tools at your disposal to start to customize from and then again you could take that into your application whether that be um, like a travel app or a web magazine or anything and make it work with your system
0: there's so much more you know that you do aside from material you have your own podcast tools day just taking a look you've recently talked about the state of css tooling flutter which yeah i need to learn more about now uh. <laughs> <laughs> well okay so
1: I, do I wish i had more time like i recorded that podcast and it made me more curious mm. but i just didn't have any time to really dig into it
2: uh, you know what do you think about the the chaos the wonderful chaos that is the javascript world in terms of web development
1: i think it's an exciting time to be a developer i, mm. I really do and it is chaotic but i think that that's a good thing mm. because i think that the tooling that we're seeing today is the best tooling because it's taking the best bits of each other like we were just talking to rich harris about svelte i believe is coming on this podcast about svelte and you know he's sort of taking the best ideas from other frameworks integrating them into his they're all taking the best ideas and integrating them to make the best solution to the problem of Developing on the web, so while the ecosystem is getting a little bit more complex, it's allowing for a lot more complex applications to be built using web code. And like we're seeing JavaScript in robots, we're seeing JavaScript everywhere. We're seeing it in like refrigerators, seeing in cars, and it's just it's a really exciting time, in my opinion, to be someone who knows how to code for the web. Mm.
2: That's also somewhat terrifying. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Not the most secure language.
2: The, the JavaScript is is in my car. I mean, it is. It's a little terrifying, you know. To some I extent, I hope it's not
1: relying uh, on a nerd
0: modules folder somewhere. And oh, just think about the lodash. Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, if I'm barreling down the highway, I definitely don't want to be doing an npm install. Like, I, I, I mean,
1: d- you move to New York City, you won't have to drive anywhere.
2: <laughs> That's true. But then you know, then maybe the subway is going to run on it. You know, who knows? That's who even knows?
1: more terrifying.
2: Yeah, it is right. But so. I mean, the way I kind of look at the the JavaScript ecosystem or the the whole kind of open source ecosystem in general is that it's kind of like a petri dish. Like things are just organically growing and dying and and mating with each other and stealing ideas and and like you said, evolving in, in this crazy way. And you're right that a lot of things we probably would never see that type of innovation as quickly if we didn't have it like that. But on the other hand, like man, when you are trying to pick a target on which horse am I going to bet on for this project? It's not an easy choice. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like Svelte sounds fantastic. Should I, is it ready? Should I bank on it for this one? Or should I invest the time, you know, learning Vue, or should I invest the time learning react? Or should I just go vanilla or, you know, like wh- what am I supposed to do? And it, it does, it makes for incredible innovation, but it also makes for a lot of difficult choices, you know?
1: Well, I think that the good thing about a lot of these frameworks, is that the concepts are pretty similar. Like with and mm-hmm. React, it's a component-based model, and that's a lot of where the web is going. I mean, even right. if you think about web components and lit element, lit HTML, that's sort of component-based frameworks. And I think that that's how we've been designing for the web for a while, thinking about these design systems, these component systems. And it makes sense that the technology that runs those and builds those is also very component-focused and driven. So I don't think it's As chaotic as it seems, like if Mm. you learn Vue, React is not that different and vice versa. And Svelte's also, I mean, there's syntax differences, there's like usage, runtime differences a little bit there, Um, but you're still learning how to learn and you're still learning how to build in a component-driven system. So I think that it's a little bit more similar than people give it credit for.
2: Yeah, con- conceptually it definitely is, but then also when you peel back the layers and you're like, okay, I'm going to um, start a uh, Vue CLI project or, or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And you end up with 500 megabytes of npm packages <laughs> before oh, yeah. you write before you write anything. Like, how do you? Like, I don't know. Again, I come from kind of app development and it's a little bit more cautious. Like there's a little more security auditing that's involved. Like who is going to be able to audit 500 megabytes of of packages, you know?
1: Totally. And I think that's also a big difference between like startups versus big companies where you do have to have somebody vet all the packages that are attached. Mm, Right. For a good reason. Right. I mean, at the same time, this is also like a trade-off between the developer experience and the end-user experience.
2: Mm. Because
1: a lot of these frameworks don't have all of those dependencies for the end-user. Like Gatsby, right. for example, you do have a lot of node modules to build it, but then it outputs to a static website. Yep. So your end-user is not going to have to download all those node dependencies. Um, but it is interesting that Svelte doesn't have any dependencies. That's like a... Mm a cool direction that i think we're going to start seeing more and more of.
2: Yeah. People are getting I, a lot
1: more weary, right?
2: I can't wait to talk to Rich because i've been around for a really long time and there were some concepts that we implement, implemented back in the day because processor power was very restricted that have come full circle and are now being done on the web because we've got mobile devices that are very cpu restricted. So it's really it's kind of really interesting to see how that all plays out, but I wish that we had a, a another co-host who's usually here, whose name is Earl. And one of his big things is developer experience versus user experience, right? From the perspective of, okay, developer, I love that you get all this tooling and you've got this nice uh, uh, Jamstack thing that renders everything, but it runs like crap on my cell phone. <laughs> you know? like, and, and he has a problem with that from the, the point of view of, well, it's all well and good that You as a developer like this, but what about the end user that ends up using it? Is that something that you're focused on when you are uh, working on material design? Is not just the developer experience, but also the end user and what they're going to see?
1: I think that's a really important point. And I feel like development teams make excuses for this because they just say, oh, well, our devices are better now, right?
2: Mm, And
1: that's not necessarily true. It depends where in the world you are, what kind of connection you have. Yeah, Such an important aspect to development. And that's kind of why these components right now are in a very base state so that it doesn't hog up a lot of processing power. It's sort of just the most vanilla component that you can use to try to ensure that your application is as efficient as possible. Hmm.
0: With regard to that, in terms of user experience, if people are concerned from an accessibility standpoint, if I, if I bring this in, you know, this looks like a select, but is it really a select? Are these all you know going through a, an accessibility review do, you know are these kind to people who are using some sort of assistive device
1: accessibility is definitely one of the things that's considered heavily while building these components mm-hmm. like touch target sizes mm-hmm. um with the theming the accessibility sort of starts to lie on the side of the developer sure, yeah. because you know you could make whatever color too light yeah. or dark and you we give control of of the color on top of colors as well. So you have like your um, your primary color and then your color on primary. So whenever you have something on top of the primary color, like you have control over all these things. Mm-hmm. So understanding the basics of accessibility with web development is such a key thing for developers. And I think that's a, a topic, like we can go on oh, yeah. and on about this. Yeah. I think like that's a topic that is definitely missing in schools mm-hmm. that people should learn more about when they're entering this industry. Mm. Um, yeah.
2: No, I agree with you because... Making a good accessible site. First of all, you're obvious. I mean, the the obvious is that you're making something that is more accessible to a broader range of people. And why would you ever want to exclude people from visiting your your website? But it also makes things better for Google, for instance, uh, indexing your site and crawling it and, and doing all that kind of good stuff. And that's why I'm really surprised that it's not emphasized more.
1: Yeah, I mean accessibility is such a core tenant of usage for anyone. Right. Touch targets are just one example of that. Another example is being outside in a bright day when you're yeah. trying to read something on a screen. Mm. Um, I think it's actually really cool because now we're starting to see the emergence of dark mode on applications. So like Android um, has dark mode for a lot of applications now. And that I think is an interesting experience from a design and development perspective. Like how do we change the UI based on user preferences here?
2: Right. And the the funny thing is that iOS had "quote unquote dark mode for a really long time, but it was buried under accessibility and it would invert the yeah, screen's
0: high contrast. Yeah.
1: awful. That's the worst way to do dark mode all of your, all uh, your blues everything. become
0: yellows and yeah. I
1: didn't Brand say it was completely as lost.
0: I didn't say it was yeah. good. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting. I mean, we have dark mode now on Mac OS. You know, I I use it. I've gotten really used to it. Uh, even in my email client, I use it, um, which is really fun when someone uses HTML email and hard codes in a black font color. So now I have black on black text. Mm. It's a rumor. To become- but isn't, isn't dark mode? Isn't dark mode in iOS just a really
2: lame limited theme, though? I think you know, it really
0: depends on the application, uh, you know, Spark and Mail, uh, they're all out just dark through and through. Chrome, for example, I think there are some good dark themes out there, but I don't know if they have, you know, quote unquote, first party support for dark mode.
2: Well, well, let's put it this way. If Una was on here talking to us about material design and she said that it supported light and dark themes. Mm-hmm. You know, we'd probably be like, well, wh- what the hell, Yuna? Like, we want to do more than that, you know?
1: The good thing is that you definitely can. One of the things that CSS provides is sort of prefers color scheme, which mm-hmm. we are talking about light and dark. But you can customize that beyond what would automatically take place.
2: Oh, no, no, no. I know, I know that uh, material design can do it. I'm kind of roasting Apple here.
1: Oh, well, I'm saying anywhere. If you're working okay. on the web, you have the control. Yeah. Like, if you're yeah. building a web app or a website, that is... That is on you. There are a couple of like funny things. Like uh, Firefox for a time had a media query based on ambient light. It was like an ambient light media query that would detect the amount of light based on your phone camera, and then you could style things on the web page. Like you could make your text darker and bigger when it was phone super camera. light, and vice versa. Um, make it like dark background, white text on darker areas. But that was like a major security issue, <laughs> so they had to. How, how it. is
2: it a security issue?
1: I guess any usage of camera could become something that's potential oh, vulnerability.
2: <laughs> mm, okay. Yeah, no, actually, that makes sense. That makes sense. You ever sense, heard uh,
0: right? the alternate of brainstorming is um, Black Mirror Storming? I'm trying to think, how could this technology turn into an episode of Black Mirror? <clears throat> <laughs> where where they could use it for something Yeah, crazy. you just have to go I there. Yeah, so I good. stole that from someone, someone on Twitter who maybe I can find, but said, yeah, it, it's a good way when you're – Trying to think about building defensively, or, or what are the ulterior motives that could come about that I'm not considering? Think how could this become Black Mirror one day?
1: That's definitely someone's job
0: yeah, out there. Hope so. It, it
2: makes sense because there are there are laser microphones that from 500 yards you can project a laser beam on a pane of glass, and you can listen to the conversation that's happening inside that room. Like how crazy is that? You know. Yeah. So I'm sure something could be done with the. Uh, you're right with the with the camera on, you know, millions of devices like God, I can't even imagine what would happen. Wasn't that wasn't that a plot device in one of the Batman movies where they, yes, they like yeah. got all the phones together and and uh, whoever it was. Uh, oh, God, whoever was playing the, yeah, Gordon, the guy Morgan that created Freeman, all the stuff. He, um, Morgan yeah, Freeman. Yeah. yeah, he's like, I, I, I refuse to do this. This is ethically wrong. Yeah, it was kind right? of
0: the, you know, post Edward Snowden, you know. Yeah. It, yeah, that was a good one.
1: So terrifying. Mm-hmm. Web security is definitely my favorite oxymoron. Yeah, right. right. I, like, I know enough about it to know that it's not real. And that if right. somebody was motivated enough, they could find out anything they want about you. But I yeah. am looking forward.
0: This, Go, sorry, going back to dark mode. <laughs> <laughs> All right.
1: A dark conversation. It got well, dark. Yeah, no,
0: but <laughs> yeah, it's getting dark. I think it's going to be fun to see that you know it's widely rumored that iOS 13 Coming in the fall, that that's going to support dark mode, and then you can have a media query and say if they prefer dark mode or however it's being worded, you can serve you know alternate stylings and do a dark background, light text. It'll be interesting to see if that stays within the realm of apps, things like Gmail, like whatever it is, you know, more tool based things that adopt that, or if you'll see brands start to respect dark mode um, and rethink what their website could look like for people who. Yeah, or just using dark windows and dark everything. um, With you know, would they want their website to now be one big bright screen, or or would they? Yeah. Well, now
2: now that you've gotten me all hyped up on this vaporwave stuff, like I'm gonna (laughs) wait for my I'm gonna wait for Miami mode. That'd be nice. Nice. Switch it into Miami mode, and I'll have my hot pinks and all that kind of stuff, and the Miami Vice theme will start playing.
1: Sign me up for that. Into that. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is just like the next. Version of responsive design. You know, starting to think about responsiveness not just in terms of screen size or um, or even what device you're using, but how can you make your application responsive to the user, responsive to the light level that th- is surrounding the user, responsive to their location, responsive to the weather. All these things are kind of just trying to tailor applications to humans, and that kind of brings us full circle back to this idea of like user experience being the be all end all ultimate goal for any developer or product mm-hmm. person
2: it could be responsive to the person's mood, you know, mm-hmm. who knows.
1: Maybe I mean, device
2: up. it could get smart enough that it could uh it could read your incoming gmail, it could know that your boyfriend or girlfriend broke up with you and then it could make a nice bright happy theme to try and cheer you up, right?
1: Or just know your horoscope from your birthday and
2: or that, you yeah, <laughs> know, or whatever. It's just like these little things. Wow, I mean this is you're kind of blowing my mind with this. Like this next generation of responsiveness is not just about screen size. Like we could adapt absolutely everything. This reminds me of the discussion I had when I was a kid, when I was like, oh, you know, what if, what if we were just little tiny things sitting on a speck of dust that's floating in the universe, man? You know, like crazy,
0: (laughs) crazy. Yeah, I think Jason Grigsby, I'm trying to remember his last name, um, the progressive web web app guy, uh, had actually a really good talk a few years ago on kind of designing for context and thinking about all the sensors that are underused and could be used through web APIs. But yeah, it is interesting too, to think about When it comes to cameras, when it comes to anything like that, that there's also how much do you really want to open up to your website and want to try to be making assumptions? but
2: And how much could be done just, and and I know Google is a hugely AI powered company in some regards. I mean, how much could be done with just watching users and seeing their frustration and trying to fix things, right? Like if you see someone constantly rage clicking or rage tapping (laughs) to kind of like adapt and to Show them, oh, you know, this is – what are you trying to do or can I help you or or that kind of so thing.
1: That's know? such an interesting metric. Like how aggressively are people clicking on things? So I know – Right. How yeah. hard are they hitting that trackpad? I don't know if
0: either of you have used Full Story, which you know, does that sort of yeah. – Oh, yeah. I mean, they literally have a like rage click thing that if you just want to see some – my grandfather, who's, he used to always just smash his mouse, start clicking. He'd accidentally <laughs> minimize the window <laughs> until it was basically, you know, pixels – and uh, I'd have to go over and literally go to their house and unminimize windows for him.
1: I'm so curious what that's going to be like when we're older oh. and when we're the people who aren't like up to date with the technology. <laughs> like, what's that going to look like for us? I just
0: tell myself, no, I'm always going to be in with the cool kids, but we'll see.
2: Good luck yeah. with that. Good luck with that. My my kids already teased me about everything and whether it happened before fire was invented and all this kind of stuff. But I'm. it's coming. Like, Patrick, it's coming. The day is coming that your kids, you're going to have to call them over for assistance to use your phone or something. Like it's going to happen, you know? Uh,
0: I don't know. I don't know. I... <laughs> well, we can go into a <laughs> long discussion have... about how kids don't actually get to go in and like tinker with their computers and hack on their computers anymore. They're all way too uh, cleaned up. And I, I, yeah. Anyway.
2: Well, that's actually true. But the, this is
0: also then, you know, has nothing to do with what Una is doing. No, with, no, it doesn't. We've, we've taken U, Una down many, many reps. Una. <laughs>
1: Damn Damn it. The routes this, takes. <sighs> <sighs> this is why I feel like it's so important to keep like the love and creativity in the web because mm. that's what got us yep. into it. Yep. You know, we want right. a new generation of people to be just as excited about it and to to make it their own. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think that wraps it up for another episode of the devmode.fm podcast. To have every episode delivered to your favorite podcast player, subscribe to our RSS or subscribe via iTunes or Google Play. If you like what we're doing, please leave us a review. You can, all afo- eh, you can also follow us on Twitter at DevModeFM. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. Leave us a comment on the DevModeFM website for the DevModeFM podcast. I'm Patrick Harrington. I'm Andrew Welch. And very big thanks to Una Kravitz. Thanks, Una. Una. Oh,
1: Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you. Did it very good. Bye, all.
2: little story he was asking you about the geocaching (laughs) thing that was
1: that was i figured there was like something there
2: that was patrick he it's basically like you've heard of cultural appropriation right that was fictional character appropriation because that's what i do on a lot of these episodes i'll i'll put people in a weird scenario and patrick just shamelessly stole it just shameless shameless Shameless. no shame (laughs) at all But, you know, thank you very much for coming on. And I'm so sorry that I screwed up your name.
1: That's okay. It happens a lot. Uh,
0: um, Just make sure you, Andrew, you haven't uh, ended the...